From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We sort through conflicting reports today that the massive overhaul at DIA is over budget and behind schedule. Mayor Michael Hancock maintains it's not. Plus, why the airport is so critical to his vision for Denver's future and why the car isn't. Then war can force soldiers to violate their moral compass, in essence creating a moral injury on the battlefield, one approach to helping veterans cope. Also, on Bike to Work Day, a disconnect. People want to ride their bikes more, but don't, because they're scared. Later, there's been an important victory in sports, and we're not talking about the Women's World Cup. Most of us are over 70. Some of us are in our 80s. And when opera meets electronica. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The big redesign of Denver International Airport is more than $300 million over budget and more than three years behind schedule, at least according to the contractor. The mayor says otherwise. Michael Hancock sat down with Denverite's David Sachs just three weeks after being elected to a third and final term. And David's going to share some highlights of the conversation, including whether sprawl might just be Hancock's legacy. And David, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? Doing well. Before we get to these differing views, uh, remind us how the Great Hall Project at DIA uh, will change the experience of the more than 60 million people who travel through the airport each year. Yeah, and that number is actually going to rise to 80 million people in the coming years. And it's a $650 million total project. Basically, it's going to be more efficient security screening. Uh, They're going to move the security lines upstairs Uh, more places to shop and eat so you can sort of have this mall experience at the airport. With some of the Great Hall behind security. Right. And overall, they'll be renovating and sort of revamping all the parts of the airport. They're going to modernize everything. And until it's finished, the terminal is sort of cut in two. So to hear the mayor talk about DIA renovations, this is a numbers game. And the city is still assessing if the Great Hall project has gone awry. What's your understanding? Uh, so Denver uses public-private partnerships. It's how they finance uh, big capital projects like this one. It's um, where a city and a for-profit company g- get together. Exactly. Um, and it's sort of Hancock's go-to move. He even has a new office to streamline P3s, as they call them. Right now, DIA's Great Hall renovation is estimated at uh, about $300 million over budget, $311 million to be exact, according to the contractor. But Mayor Hancock says... That's not true. And that's a big difference, $311 million. I agree. What's at the heart of this discrepancy? Concrete, of all things. Um, Hancock says part of the delay is because of questions about concrete used when the terminal was first built decades ago. The contractors say it's not strong enough to support the things that will go on top of it. I asked Mayor Hancock about that $300 million difference of opinion. Here's the reality, um, because you're hearing from the contractor, you're not he- that developer, you're not hearing from the owner, which is Denver National Airport. And we just simply were not done with our analysis. Um, the most recent report that we received uh, this week is that there is not a concern or an issue with the concrete. And so now we're sitting down with them to say, we know there's not an issue with the concrete. How do we now work on this project in a way that moves it forward with forecasts that, quite frankly, we can all agree on? Who told you there's no problem with the concrete? 
third-party uh, evaluators who took a look at the uh, who evaluated the system for us. Okay, so still, that's that's a pretty big dis- big discrepancy. So whether whoever's right, um, what do you say to residents who look at this public-private partnership, who look at you know the Great Hall and and the fact that it might be you know like years later, and and how do you convince them that P3s are the answer? The, the, here's the thing with P3s, it's really a shared or a transfer of the burden of delivering these capital projects, an opportunity for us to actually realize something, whereas the public sector probably couldn't afford it to do by itself without disproportionately burdening the taxpayer. It's 2019, and we had this concrete challenge, uh, concrete that was laid in 1995. There were questions about it, and it has nothing to do with P3s. It had something to do with making sure that everybody's safe in that, in that airport. That was our number one priority. Rather, the DIA was doing it by itself or doing it in a P3. This would have been a challenge going forward and something we had to check out. Thankfully, it came back saying, through our analysis, expert third-party analysis, this concrete is in good shape. So it remains to be seen uh, what that means for the overall construction schedule and if the cost overruns will really add up to $300 million plus dollars. Hard to get a concrete answer, it seems. <laughs> yeah, and... DIA and the contractor began talks last week about the project. It was originally supposed to be done uh, in November 2021. For context, the airport, hotel, and transit center were over budget. And the whole backdrop is that the mayor is very interested in this idea of an aerotropolis, which is a sort of city outside of the city anchored by the airport so all of the land around it would be developed. Yeah, he's been talking about this for some time. And you discussed his legacy. As we said, Mayor Hancock has just entered his final term. Yeah, and we talked about that. He has a lot of irons in the fire. He has a commitment to making the city and the environment better through walking, biking, and transit. Um, so I asked Mayor Hancock to talk about that further. You no longer have to worry about re-election. Do you, <laughs> do you think that you have um, a little more leeway in a car-centric city where 73% of people drive to work to actually repurpose Parking and lanes for um, biking and transit, you know, buses. Yes. And so will you carry that out in the next four years, and what's the first step? We have been doing some education and uh, best practices for ourselves over the last uh, year, uh, maybe a couple years now. And I think that uh, we all have come to a realization as we've looked around the world, quite frankly, that we can do better with regards to our striping and paving in the city of Denver. So you will see us moving more aggressively in that direction over the next year or two. What do you want your legacy to be after your 12-year term is over? Wow. You know, uh, David, I'll give you, I'll be honest with you, I don't really spend much time thinking about legacy. I let other people think about that. What I came in focused on is how do we make the city better for children? And I hope that when I'm done, people see that this city is a much better city for children to grow up in and be healthy and productive. Uh, I try to make the city safer. We have seen the city become a much safer city in the midst of our unprecedented growth. I try to make the city more globally competitive. Um, and I know now, and we all know that Denver, without question, is a more globally competitive city. And I wanted to make this city a very desirable place to live in. Uh, in 2010, 2011, we were nowhere on the list of the best places to live in America. Today, and perennially over the last five to six years, we've been at number one, two, or three. Um, I think that says a lot for the progress we've made as a city, and I'm proud of that. I mean, that that's a broad brush, and it talks about some people but not others who have obviously been displaced from this growth. So that's also going to be a part of your legacy. Isn't that right? Well, what I think you'll see is that where cities have grown and have become very desirable and where people want to live, uh, we have uh, 
unfortunate uh, challenges of people who become displaced. But great cities also recognize that we got to go go back and make sure we're able to bring individuals along and every along the entire spectrum and give people an opportunity to be healthy, to find a job, to build a home, and to build a future in the city. And that's where in the third term I'm going to be uh, exponentially focused under the, under the umbrella of equity in this city. And so uh, when you ask what the third term is going to be focused on, it's going to be about equity. It's going to be about making sure we level the playing field and create balance in terms of our growth and make sure that we can counter displacement in our city. Uh, I believe we can do it, and I'm going to be extremely focused on it. Tell me the Aerotropolis, which is, yeah. I would say a lot of people would say, maybe that'll, maybe that'll be your legacy. I don't mm-hmm. know if you would say that. But to the critics who <laughs> say it's sprawl, tell me why it's not sprawl to build out by the airport when there's infill that could be happening here. The reality is that the Aerotropolis and Aerotropoli occur uh, naturally around airports. And what I did as a candidate in 2011 was really call it out and saying either we're going to work to manage what's going to happen at the airport or we're going to allow it to happen haphazardly. Uh, and so I called out the term Aerotropolis, really brought it into our uh, our vernacular, if you will, and said, now, let's work to manage this. Let's work with the landowners around there, and let's make sure we allow for the development that's going to occur out there to be smart, sustainable, and one in which really helps the airport to be the best that it can be. And that also means to protect the airport so that it's not encroached by residences. And that was one of my first and important uh, responsibilities. But also make sure if we're going to do it, let's be the best in the world at what we're going to do, what we do. And you can go around the world today and you'll see Aerotropoli everywhere. Uh, some of it haphazardly, some of it well-planned and thought out, like down in Dallas-Fort Worth. That's really what we're talking about here in Denver because simply there's commercial activity uh, and programming that simply says we want and will need to be near the airport if we're going to be in your area. So it's not sprawl because people won't be going to the Aerotropolis well, from, I, I, from the know, city? I'm not going to ask you a question whether it's sprawl or not. The reality is it's a natural growth toward the airport. Uh, it, it is an economic center. And so there are businesses and activity that want to be near the airport. It's going to happen naturally anyway. So do we as a city, we either let it happen haphazardly without any thought or engagement from the city, without our values of sustainability and and and, and an opportunity, um, or we go in and say let's work collaboratively and make sure this is something, you know, our values are, are represented here. And I think that's what we're doing when you see companies like Panasonic going into the Aerotropolis. Um, and they're talking about things like uh, how do we become more modern and efficient and, and you know, driverless cars, battery operator, electric vehicles, electrifications. Those are the kind of things that we were driving toward the airport to make it that kind of center of laboratory for, for innovation. Now, Mayor Hancock won a third term only after a runoff election. Uh, but when it comes to growth and development, he says that uh, he thinks the city has a clear trajectory. Yeah, he says that he has a mandate, um, that the people have spoken clearly because he has won more than 55 percent of the vote in the runoff. Um, He says he will work to improve communication and get feedback from the public about ways to do that. David, thanks so much. Thank you. David Sachs of Denverite, which is now part of Colorado Public Radio. Beyond the physical injuries of war, beyond PTSD, a new type of trauma is coming to light for some combat veterans. It's called moral injury. The idea that war forces you into impossible decisions, ones that can lead troops to violate their moral compass. A project called Heroes to Heroes is working on this issue. Retired Army Specialist C.J. Geeker of Denver has gone through the program, and welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. And Heroes to Heroes founder is Judy Isaacson Elias. Hello, Judy. 
Hello. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. CG, I want to hear more about your experience in both Afghanistan and Iraq. But Judy, I understand researchers are just beginning to study moral injury. Give us some insight into what moral injury is, maybe some examples. Yeah, sure. Um, Moral injury comes in many forms, and it can hit the civilian population as well as the military population. In the military, um, survivor's guilt is a form of moral injury. Uh, One of the things we're finding among our veterans is the issues they have, the the trauma that happened that caused their moral injury is some of the most difficult trauma for them to speak about. For example, we had a young man, 26 years old, with three suicide attempts, uh, who was from Arkansas. And his parents couldn't understand what was going on. They were afraid to lose him were so desperate they drove him from Arkansas to Newark to meet our group. But when he came out of Yad Vashem, which is a Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem, he finally was able to open up. This program involves trips to Israel, which we'll talk about in just a bit, uh, why you think that's such a powerful element. Can you give us some more examples of moral injury? Sure. And so to describe that, I mentioned, you know, that Uh, the Holocaust Museum to explain what happened to him and his moral injury. What he explained to us, he said, the first thing I saw in in Yad Vashem was I learned that I'm a soldier, not a murderer. And that was such a powerful statement because in many of our soldiers' lives, that's how they come home. That's part of their thought process because it's not how we weren't raised that to kill, even though it's part of their job. And what he went on to explain was his one his battle buddy was the target five feet away of an insurgent. And that insurgent was going to kill his battle buddy. And he had less than a second to make a decision whether he to eliminate the problem or let his buddy possibly be eliminated. And he made the right decision and he took out the insurgent. And then found out that insurgent was 10 years old. Hmm. And we're not fighting armies. We're not fighting people like us. And so it's very different. It's very difficult for our soldiers to, how do you say, how do you make that decision? First of all, he didn't realize that the insurgent who had a weapon was that young. And, um, but he had to live with that. And he had described to us that every single night... That young man visited him in his dreams. My goodness. And it's the kind of decision that one is forced into on a battlefield that can lead to this moral injury. You also talk about survivor's guilt being a function of this. CJ, you served as a scout doing reconnaissance and door-to-door missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, You were medically retired in 2013 after an RPG attack. That's a rocket-propelled grenade. You were medevaced out. Your injuries, including brain trauma, were severe, uh, but you didn't want to leave your fellow troops. Help us understand that. Um, I didn't at all. Uh, I was medevaced out, um, came to uh, in the hospital in Kandahar, which is the big hospital in Afghanistan, uh, southern Afghanistan. Um, I came to, the doctors told me what had happened. I had a tube in my head, um, and they let me know that I was headed to Germany. Uh, and that I'd be back in the States in a few days, and everything would be fine. 
Um, but that's, that's not what I wanted. Um, as a soldier, you, you want to complete the mission. So we went over as a team. And so we needed, in my mind, I needed to finish as a team because without me, there was a piece missing. Um, and so after much convincing, um, and much argument, I was returned to my unit to be able to, to finish that deployment, um, with my team. Oh my goodness. Is that unusual to be able to make that argument and then be returned? Um, it is, uh, normally it's kind of cut and dry, like they make the decision and, mm-hmm. and that's it. But I was, I was pretty persistent, um, and talked them into giving me enough tests that showed that I could, I could make it in the, on the battlefield that they let me go back. Do you resonate with this idea of moral injury? I do. This is uh, moral injuries, kind of a new, a new thing I'm learning about. Uh, like most, um, it's it's not something that that is talked about a lot um, in the military. So uh, I actually heard it first from Judy. Um, but yeah, just just speaking about listening to her speak about moral injury, it it kind of resonates with me that I've experienced that, and and a lot of my battle buddies have. In what form have you um, experienced it? I've experienced it. For me, it was a lot of survivor's guilt. Um, we lost seven guys in Afghanistan. Um, same missions I was on. Uh, so it was kind of, why me? Why did I survive and they didn't make it? Um, I was much older than most of them. Um, so that that's the big part of moral injury that, that I deal with. Um, the other part is, like Judy said, having to, to do things that... Growing up, we're not, I was told we're not the right thing to do um, as far as, you know, killing someone. That's that's not something that you're taught is okay, but it's something you have to do. Hmm. I know that when you returned to the United States, you struggled with your mental health and you too had thought about suicide. Yes, sir. Um when I returned, I struggled uh, a lot with my mental health, a lot of anger issues, a lot of survivor's guilt, um, but I just couldn't, I ran away family and friends from all that, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So I actually tried suicide three different times. Um, luckily, it didn't didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely was in a spot in my life where I thought I didn't have a will to live. So I want to talk about how Heroes to Heroes connects veterans to the Holy Land, essentially. Um, Why is that such a powerful part of the healing that can happen around moral injury, Judy? Well, one thing that's not discussed about healing and healing from war is finding forgiveness. And our soldiers are expected to go do their thing, kill watch their buddies die, see all kinds of, you know, horrors that the American public will never know about, and then come back and pretend it didn't happen and get back to life and go to work. What's not discussed is how do you forgive yourself? How do you find forgiveness? How do you reconnect? And moral injury is about that disconnect is about heavy guilt. It's many of our, we're doing a long-term study on our program. 
because the outcomes have been so successful. And connect but this to me with Israel. With, with Israel, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, so I, it actually goes back when I was 16 years old, and I was having issues with my family, and I ran away, and I was doing drugs. And my parents sent me on a trip to Israel. And when I touched the wall, I realized I wasn't alone. And it made me whole. And I came back, and I got my life together. I finished high school. And I realized if these veterans are suffering from moral injury, they need that connection. They need a connection with faith, with healing, with forgiveness. And the only place to do that is in Israel, in an unashamed way. You speak of the wall. This is the Western the wall. wall. Uh, is, the, is this a religious experience then? Was that uh, your it's, experience, CJ? Um, for me, uh, um, religion had a part in it. Um, but for me, it was more of um, coming coming to grips with forgiveness and refining my purpose in life. Um, and I was I was able to do that. Uh, one, it's Israel. It's it's an amazing experience. But two, I was with other uh, U.S. veterans along with uh, Israeli veterans. Um, so I was able to see their perspective and uh, see my other uh, battle buddies' perspectives. And it was just a way for us to find that purpose and that forgiveness um, without being judged because we were all in the neutral ground. Right. And part of what we do is, for example, they get baptized in the Jordan River. Um, they have, they're able to touch and feel their history, the foundation. They walk, you know, about 80, 90, 98% of our participants are of Christian faiths. So they walk where Jesus walked. They're able to reconnect, touch, and feel. Is there a, a place in this, in the little bit of time we have left, mm. uh, for veterans who are not of a particular faith? Oh, we have taken veterans who are atheists, veterans who are Muslim veterans, Jewish veterans. And so much of it is reconnection. And there's a feeling in Israel that they get that they can be unashamed of finding and asking and connecting. It's reconnecting that's so important. And there is that connection as well with uh, Israeli soldiers mm -hmm. uh, while they're there. I guess to wrap up, uh, CJ, it, it sounds like you're doing pretty well today. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, Heroes of Heroes definitely put me on that track to turn my life around. Thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Retired thank Army you. Specialist C.J. Geeker of Denver is an alumni of Heroes to Heroes, which helps combat veterans with moral injury. And Judy Isaacson Elias of Fort Lee, New Jersey, founded the program. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a coach who led her team to victory from a hospital bed. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Join me, Anne-Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado Public Radio podcast called On Something. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was just a big win in the sports world, and I'm not talking about the Women's World Cup. This victory came in softball, senior women's softball. Over the weekend, the Colorado Peaches took home a national silver medal. The Peaches are the state's only 70-and-over team. We first introduced you to them a couple of years ago. Their win came during the National Senior Games in Albuquerque, despite the fact that a key member was missing. Considering I had a 10-hour surgery a couple of weeks ago, I feel really good. Head coach Gail Clock speaking from her hospital bed in Denver. She had to miss the tournament because of cancer surgery. I was hoping to be there with them playing and coaching, but was not able to come. But they FaceTimed me, and I got to see the games and help coach, and it was fantastic. When we visited Clock in the hospital this week, she had a visitor, 88-year-old Maggie McCloskey, who plays second base. You know, it was just like Gail was there. She was, she was so present. Physically, she wasn't there, but she was there. <laughs> yeah. I just think that Gail has such a way of connecting with each individual on the team. The Peaches' silver medal is remarkable when you consider their competition. Every time we go to a tournament, we play younger players. So when we win a game, it's really wonderful. And the same here. We were playing in the 70 division. Most of us are over 70. Some of us are in our 80s. Coach Clock says she got news of the win a little later than she might have hoped. I think I found out about a half an hour afterwards, and it was very, very thrilling to find that out, to know how well they'd done. And just as soon as the team got back from New Mexico, they headed for the hospital. One of the team players brought me a medal and team picture, and it made my days here so much easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it does. It had to have a focus to feel like you can contribute. I know as a result of the surgery, I'll never play again. But I know I can always coach. And to have that, you can't put it in words what it means. Gail Clock, coach of the Colorado Peaches, the senior women's softball team in Denver. They took home a silver medal over the weekend at the National Senior Games. Coach Clock says she'll run weekly practices from her bedside. The cancer surgery was successful. Her prognosis is good. This is a day to ditch the car and hop on a bicycle. Today is Bike to Work Day. Surveys show people want to ride their bikes more, but they don't because... They're scared. That's Avi Stopper. He leads a new movement based in Denver called the Bike Streets Project. So in 2019, we have a very ambitious goal of getting lots and lots of people out riding bikes. Tens of thousands or even 100,000 people riding bikes across the vast expanse that is the city of Denver. I love that you're all about movement, but your last name is Stopper. It's an unfortunate coincidence. I met Stopper in Denver's Congress Park neighborhood, not far from the Botanic Gardens. He, of course, rode his bike here. His bike's pretty unassuming. And so is Stopper. He's not decked out in lycra, just office attire and a helmet. And we talked more about the kind of people who want to hop on their bikes, but don't. The most substantial group is described often as interested but concerned. And that represents full-on 60% of the population in cities like Denver. So 60% of people want to ride their bikes but don't feel comfortable in the established infrastructure. As you were answering that, you pointed to a giant RTD bus that was whizzing by. 
Yeah, so here we are on 12th in Congress Park, and there happen to be right in front of us sharrows. And sharrows are basically a stencil of a bicycle and two arrows pointing in the direction that bicycles should ride. So they are sharing a lane here with buses. And that's intimidating, you're saying, for folks. That's terrifying for the vast majority of people who would otherwise be interested in using a bicycle to ride around town. It's not that great for the bus driver either. I mean, I put myself in the driver's seat as well. I mean, I'm a cyclist and a driver. And I can think about those times I've been on a busy road. And I think, this isn't safe for either of us. Should you be one street over? One street over is exactly where we're going to go in a moment. So 11th in Congress Park is part of the bike streets map. And it's this delightful neighborhood street. I just rode down it. And there are tons of people out there walking their dogs. There are kids out there playing. It's a great place to ride your bicycle. And it's the sort of place where I would ride, where I would take my kids, where my parents would be inclined to ride, where folks who are traditionally not terribly confident, and maybe they are confident but just don't want to contend with buses on the way home, would rather ride their bikes. He referred there to the Bike Streets map. It's something he developed with help from New Belgium, the brewery that loves bikes so much they have a beer called Fat Tire. So I call the Bike Streets map the low-stress bicycling map of Denver. And the idea is that it kind of turns your adrenaline rush from riding on big arterial streets into an endorphin rush, a really wonderful, pleasurable experience where you're riding on these low-stress streets You're experiencing the neighborhoods around you, and you don't have to be an incredibly competent bicyclist to do it. Is this a different direction than bike advocates and cities have gone in in the past? In other words, I think of the increasing bike infrastructure in Denver, and in a way, the movement is towards bells and whistles. It's towards these protected lanes special lights that indicate when bikes can go and when bikes can stop. The reality is that there are, in Denver, many organizations and groups within the city, including Public Works, that are doing fantastic work to advocate for bicycling, to increase ridership in Denver. Now, I think that a lot of the projects that ultimately end up getting built are the types of projects on big scary streets where people don't actually want to ride bikes. The problem is that those experiments, those projects are so expensive that they can only be done in these isolated locations. So you end up with what I like to think of as islands, where you have one island just out in the middle of nowhere that's really good, but it doesn't connect into a network. And network is really ultimately what Bike Streets is all about. It is creating a community network that allows you to get anywhere. And the concept of a bike network on low-stress neighborhood streets is not totally novel or innovative by any stretch. The city actually has already on the designated bike map a few of what they call neighborhood bikeways. You're essentially trying to crowdsource this and get input from folks in neighborhoods all over Denver to say, you know... My little street is a wonderful place to safely ride a bike. We have built up a network, 45 so far, of what we're calling neighborhood captains, which are folks who live in neighborhoods scattered around the city who are really interested in bicycling and want to get people in their communities out on their bikes and show them how to get around town. And I'm not just talking about riding to work. You can ride to... That car, by the way, just passed at about 40 miles an hour. You can ride a bike anywhere to meet a friend, to go to someone's house, 
to go for coffee, to go to church, to go to school, to go to the library. Isn't this a little bit of a duh moment? In other words, if someone's afraid of riding a bike on a busy street, they go to the next street that's not quite so terrifying. It seems like you're expending a fair amount of effort to do something that's pretty intuitive. <laughs> that is a, that's a good question and a fair one. What I have seen is an absence of the ability to turn that into a means to actually get from one place to another. So you can go for a casual, pleasant recreational ride, but what happens when you want to ride from Congress Park down to the Cherry Creek Trail? How do I get there? Avi Stopper would love to take this mission to connect low-stress streets statewide and beyond. But right now, he seems to be getting antsy. He really wants to take me somewhere. So we have been on 12th, which, as I mentioned, is on the conventional bike map. There are these sharrows right down the middle of 12th, and I think we've been passed by four or five buses in the short time that we've been sitting here. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just take a stroll up this pleasant block and stop on 11th, on the corner of 11th and Clayton, which is just a glorious neighborhood intersection and a great place to ride a bicycle. Okay, we're leaving the hardware store, the Greek restaurant, the market on 12th, and we're walking a mere block from 12th to 11th here in Denver. Where we've come, one block over on 11th, it's almost a rest for the ears. Just walking one block in, I feel my blood pressure dropping significantly, the level of stress. And you can see that there are indeed on these side streets cars that are passing through, but they're stopping at stop signs. They're driving 10 to 15 miles an hour in many cases. There's a woman walking a dog. I think it's a greyhound. There's another woman walking a dog behind you. Avi Stopper of the Bike Streets Project, I wonder if we could go back to the busier 12th Avenue so that I can ask you a militant question. Let's get militant. The question is, don't bikes and cars have to share the road, even a busy one like this? And here you are telling cyclists to move over one block and let the cars have their way. In no way is Bike Streets about telling folks who are already riding, who are comfortable and confident riding in the places that they're riding, that they shouldn't ride there. However, I'm also a pragmatist, and I recognize that the vast majority of the population is never going to ride on big arterial streets. And personally, I love riding bikes with my kids, who are seven and nine, and the reasons that I love doing bike streets is very much that it's about finding ways that I can get out with them and ride around the city. And there is no way that I can possibly do that with them on a lot of the traditionally marked streets. Avi, thanks so much for meeting me here. I'm sorry we came back to the noisier street. I miss the quiet. Let's go back there and ride. Avi Stopper of Denver leads the Bike Streets Project. Today is Bike to Work Day, but Stopper and I first spoke in February, and since then he's been able to print 20,000 copies of the low-stress bike map. They'll be available soon at coffee shops, libraries, breweries, and rec centers around Denver. In Colorado Springs, there's a growing ozone problem. Ozone is a major component of smog. The Pikes Peak region is on the verge of dealing with the same issues seen in Metro Denver. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce explains what's at stake. 
So the Pikes Peak area has maybe only a third the population of Denver Metro. It's growing fast, though, and rising ozone levels come along with that. John Putnam is the director of environmental programs at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. He describes the region as being on the razor's edge of ozone non-attainment with the EPA. When you're kind of right on that edge, knowing that the collection of personal choices end up making a big difference to the overall situation. He means carpooling or just holding off on car trips during the heat of summer days. Not filling up your gas tank until after 5 o'clock at night. Or even waiting until evening to use a gas-powered lawnmower or leaf blower. Not major changes to people's lives. Still, those small changes really matter at this particular stage. Samantha Bailey, with the Pikes Peak Area Council of Governments, says her organization is hoping the threat of these regulations will spur the community to take the issue seriously right now and pay attention. Just making sure that individuals are aware of the levels, especially those that have respiratory sensitivities or for children and older adults. Going over the ozone threshold is bad for human health and for human wallets. It's going to take taxpayer money to get back into compliance with government members having to work with the EPA, a lot of reporting, which takes time, data collection and monitoring. Vehicles could someday need to get extra inspections and emissions checks. Industry pursuing permits are subject to more stringent requirements and maybe it's harder to get a permit. That's Dina Wojtok with the State Air Pollution and Control Division. She says if the EPA does find the Pikes Peak region exceeding ozone levels, it would have to follow a clean air plan for at least the next 20 years. There's a a long-term commitment to it. And the Pikes Peak area might see less of that iconic mountain until it can get the air cleaned back up. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Opera and electronica are two genres that don't often meet. But a pair of musicians from Lafayette, Colorado, combines the two for an innovative sound they call space opera. The duo Orbiting Olympia includes classically trained mezzo-soprano Eve Orenstein and experimental musician Sean Phelan. The married couple reimagines music by classical composers like Mahler and Debussy with vocal loops and vintage synthesizers. We are pleased to premiere the video for Orbiting Olympia's Blue Eyes at CPR.org. That's the track we're hearing now. And welcome to you both. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Eve, you've sung professionally with the likes of Opera Colorado at venues like Lincoln Center. Sean, you've performed experimental synth music under the name Distance Research. Correct. How did these worlds collide? We had a... um, uh Musicians tell us that we should record together, so we did, and then they said uh, they invited us to a show, and so we put on a show together, and it was hard for us to do at first, but the audience response was great, so 
but it kind of pushed us to go a little further. What was your reaction to this idea that you should team up? I think we kind of looked at each other like, how is this going to work? <laughs> like, I'm classically trained. All I ever do is music that's written down, and Sean does not read music and no, only creates things that are, you know, so we just, we didn't even know how we'd communicate. Um, but I think what we ended up doing was trusting the expertise of the other and, um, and just going for it. And, and we, I had some ideas, um, about, uh, pieces that I wanted to do these WC pieces that I really wanted to try with electronics. Um, so, so we went for that. What did you do to improve the communication or to create communication? Um, I started out in a rockabilly band playing drums back in 2000, and uh, it taught me a lot about call and response, and that's what we use with Eve's vocals. So I respond to her emotional output. With the synthesizers? Yeah. And then do you respond in turn to the synthesizers? Yeah, and I also will share what the original accompaniment sounds like with him, and sometimes he'll take aspects of that to, to work into at least a soundscape sort of feel of, um, of the piece. Is there a lot of improv then in this? A, a little. Of, there's, yeah. There's <laughs> structured. Okay, but it's, but it's actually quite planned out, it sounds like. It is, like. and improv is terrifying for me. It's not something <laughs> <laughs> I so. can imagine. Well, opera demands so much rehearsal and, yeah. <laughs> and being exacting. So, yeah, so improv is definitely something that um, it has to be planned improv. It's sort of like a, the oh, way okay. you would take a jazz standard, um, you know, and, and make it something that's your own. So you have something that exists, and then um, you, you find ways to, to do it differently. So with this band orbiting Olympia, you reimagine classical music in this style of space opera. The extraterrestrial sound comes from Eve's ethereal vocals and your collection of synthesizers, Sean. Why do you think the sounds work together? Um, I play emotional synths, which was something that started out in the 70s by Tangerine Dream. So and those guys, uh, even they were classically trained, but they weren't classically trained on synthesizer. So they constantly were yelling out key of C, key of A, key of B. And uh, with Eve, I just kind of feed off of that emotional response and kind of accompany with it uh, with synthesizers. What did you call the genre? Emotional synth? Yeah, it was emotional synth. And it was uh, primarily West Germany that was... I coined that phrase. It's fascinating. Eve, what's your reflection on how the sounds work together? I feel like they're both so lush and epic. Like opera is epic and synthesizers are epic. And you have this big sound from both of them. So they, they meet well. It's not like opera and mandolin, which can work, I guess. Orbiting Olympia with a track called Mon Coeur, My Heart in French. Do you wonder who listens to the music and where they're listening? Or what mood they're in when they're listening? Yes. <laughs> we do, it's such a, it doesn't fit in either classical or electronic genres. So people say it sounds goth because it's a little bit dark. Um, 
we're we you know we're not gonna prescribe what people should hear when when they listen to it but it's definitely um we're hoping it's something different and and opening their ears to something new um if they're coming from either end of it when do you listen to it our music yeah (laughs) i listen to it probably uh once a week and uh consider different possibilities for me after hearing it uh i i love candlelight at at dusk and i just think it's it's music that transitions you from one part of the day to the next that's lovely Oh, good. I'm glad glad you think so. And, um, you know, it's I'm sort of an up personality. I sing a lot of comic opera. Um, This tends to be our sort of darker outlet, um, singing arias that are sort of sexy or sultry or, you know, lush. And and, um, and then with the synths, uh, we say to people, oh, look, this is our fun dancey track. And they're like, it's really not dancey. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a beat. The other thing that it makes me think of is, I don't know if you've heard about the tank in Rangeley, Colorado. Do you know about this? Uh Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. This is an old, they think, water tank that belonged to the railroad. It has been converted into a studio. And the acoustics of it are just positively cosmic, heavenly and it's just waiting for your voice, it seems to me. Please, we'd love to be there. Yeah. Okay. We, used, we went down to Marfa. Oh, God, that was great. In, te- in, in Texas. Texas. And uh, we went to the Chinati Foundation, and the Dan Flavin yeah. um, exhibit is in these barracks, and the acoustics in there are, like, live as anything. And so I just went and started singing. It was amazing. I want to go and do a piece there. The Chinati Foundation, I think, is built in an old, like, Air Force installation, yeah. Yeah. giant hangars. It was and the barracks. Like we yeah, were these smaller barracks, and there was, like, six... Six or more of them, and each of them had this incredibly live sound. And um, yeah, it's it's fun singing in those places. <laughs> and these places have been turned into uh, like artist spaces. Mm-hmm. So the name of this group, Orbiting Olympia, is inspired by the work of 19th century composer Jacques Offenbach. What's yes. the significance? Help us understand Orbiting Olympia. Sure. So uh, we were looking for something um, that tied space and opera together and... Um, space age sort of things. Um, in, in the Tales of Hoffman, there's a character um, called Olympia, um, who is an automaton that, um, that Hoffman falls in love with. So he's, you know, figuratively uh, in orbiting her. Um, so um, we're not obnoxious. We don't make people say orbiting Olympia because that's just a little too much. But, <laughs> but it is, um, it's, you know, it's an homage to, to Offenbach and, and that character. What, what, what was the term you used, orbiting a? Automaton. Automaton. Yes. She's a robot. She's a robot. She's a robot. <laughs> As I mentioned at CPR.org, we have the premiere for your music video for Blue Eyes, which we're hearing here, directed by New York City artist Mauricio Cepi, also known as Funk Taxi 1533. Uh, I wasn't surprised to see in this video a lot of outer space imagery, and uh, the song is based on Gustav Mahler's Songs of a Wayfarer. What did you want to achieve aesthetically in this video? That's a good question. I... Uh... The videos I've done in the past have used found footage in like eight millimeter um, uh, videos, 
the people have transferred from like a real uh, like a uh, projector. Yeah, and uh, I always go for like these sixty sci-fi stuff. And Eve had a friend who was going to pair that, and he did it in such great resolution and great transitions that I felt it was good to hand over the music to that person. Huh. Yeah, and he um, he actually didn't know the name of our band uh, when he did the video until afterwards. And he was like, I made this space video. And I had no idea that it was like the space sort of theme. So we were really thrilled with it. Very cool. But it seems to me like re- retro or found mm. footage is just perfect for the aesthetic I think you're going for. We agree. Uh, you have a few orbiting Olympia recordings online. Are there plans for an album or an EP? We are always planning to record more. <laughs> yes, there is plans. Yeah. We don't have a date, but yeah. Does a collaboration like this strengthen a marriage? Or weaken it? <laughs> I didn't want to ask or oh. weaken it. I should have just stuck with or strengthen it. But what, what is it like? I think it's been really great for us. I think it's a really great project to have together. I think we're both really proud of working on this together. And um, I think, um, you know, it's not that we are without getting annoyed at each other in the studio or when we're getting ready for a gig or something. But Yeah, I'm really rigid in the studio and uh, I can create some tension, but I don't know, maybe that helps. <laughs> well, it also occurs to me that you talked about opening lines of communication at the beginning of our conversation. And that's, of course, so central to a marriage. Now you have a different way of communicating. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks so oh, much. Thanks for having us. Nice to meet you. Eve Orenstein and Sean Failing are the musicians behind Orbiting Olympia. They perform August 2nd in Lafayette at the Collective Community Arts Center. Again, head to CPR.org to see the duo's music video for Blue Eyes. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.